live. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> to the Game of London live podcast, the first live podcast we've done. And today, my special guest is Freya Homer. I will let her. Hello. I will let her introduce herself now. Oh, on the spot. Uh, <laughs> on the spot. Oh gosh, <laughs> who am I? Uh, I guess, like, within game dev spheres, I'm probably mostly known for, uh, within the Unity game development sphere, for making Shader Forge. Um, so it was a node-based shader editor from a long time ago um, that sort of somehow became the industry standard, which was actually wild <laughs> to, like, have a little plugin that I made, like, sort of explode. Um, and then after that sort of exploded in popularity, uh, it you know it was sold through the asset store, so it actually made enough money for uh, me and a friend of mine who was I was studying with to start a studio. So because uh, it, it was making like two full time salaries, incredibly like stable. It was I've never seen such a linear graph of sales. It was just very constant. Um, so uh, so yeah, we started Neatcarp. Um, yeah, I don't know how much history I should go into there, but long story short. We made a game called Budget Cuts, uh, which is a VR stealth game. Uh, and we also made Budget Cuts 2. And then also started working on Garden of the Sea. Amazing. Yeah, that was a very short version of all of my stuff. <laughs> like a... it's, yeah, it's, it's so insane that, like you say, to have something that you create become like a, a, a mainstream tool, essentially. Mm -hmm. like... It's kind of terrifying as well, because like, you feel all the responsibilities like piling up on you as well. Because uh, then when you compare it to like, you know, there are some other like larger plugins in the Unity sphere that have like teams backing them up and whatnot. Um, but I didn't have that. It was just me working on it. Uh, so then to have these like really esoteric bug reports of like, oh, I have this like proprietary version of the PlayStation where I run this special version of Unity. And when we do this and that, when plugging this controller into this part, it doesn't work. And I'm like, I, how am I supposed to solve those types of problems, you know? Yeah, yeah. Because um, so, people have the strangest issues, and you, you get to know all of them after a while. Um, but, but it worked out pretty well. Um, I guess it's always about, like, prioritizing all that. Um, yeah. Did you have much, like, support from Unity themselves? Did they, like, or was it just like, no, you've done it, cool, uh, go ahead. <laughs> Oh, no, I was talking to mostly a few employees at Unity. There was a lot of like, um, like a lot of the shader stuff and the uh, editor scripting stuff was not very documented at the time. Um, so I, I was in touch with a lot of people at Unity just to be like, hey, how the heck do I do this thing in shaders? And they're like, oh, yeah, that's not documented. You have to do this weird thing or whatever. Um, so there were a lot of like stuff like that. But, but generally, I didn't... Um, there was not like an ongoing collaboration or anything. It was mostly like I would like shoot RS on a message on Twitter every now and then. So, wow. Um, so also, my chat is upset that I did not mention shapes. <laughs> um, <laughs> we're connecting into that. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> um, well, I also very recently released another plugin to Unity called Shapes. Uh, it's a vector graphics library to make. Uh, well, pretty vector graphics. So if you want to make like uh, fully anti-aliased, uh, not polygonal, um, like circles and disks and lines, uh, if you want to do 3D lines or 2D lines, um, it's kind of like, it kind of started out as this plugin where I wanted to make math animations, uh, but I wanted to keep using Unity because I, I really like using Unity in C Sharp and I did not want to go to like, I don't know, like HTML5 Canvas is really good at like 2D vector graphics. Um, like there's a lot of really good built-in tools for that. But for me personally, I just wanted to do everything in Unity. So I kind of started doing that more and more until all of my tools kind of grew into an entire plugin where I realized that like this thing could be useful in many games, not only for like debugging or anything but like actually in-game stuff as well so yeah. um so yeah that's that's shapes i saw recently someone i think it was on twitter shared that they had used shapes to uh recreate the um is it the health or the temperature bar from breath of the wild oh the stamina bar i stamina think bar. for that's breath of the wild yeah yeah 
that's, yeah. that's like a really cool application for someone to be able to do with, yeah, with the toy you've created. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a typical example of those types of like, um, like I usually don't like calling shapes a UI plugin, mm. uh, but I do like to call it a HUD plugin because <laughs> it's more of a HUD thing than UI because UI sort of implies button interaction and text fields and all of that stuff. Whereas HUD is more like um, visual indicators of things that are not interactive. They just indicate stuff and they display stuff, right? Yeah. And they usually do it in a fancier way than you know UI does generally. Um, so, so yeah, doing stuff like radial menus. If you want to do like a, I don't know, a weapon selection menu that opens up this like pie chart thing, like that type of stuff is like really, really straightforward to do with shapes. Um, so, so I guess I, it is in a bit of a weird place of like, sometimes it's hard to like, uh, tell exactly what it's meant for. Cause I think most people think of UI immediately. Um, even though shapes doesn't really have full UI support. <laughs> Um, but, but yeah, it's exciting because it's like, it's, we'll see how things, uh, will go in the future. Um, cause like to some extent, you don't know the full use of a plugin until people actually start using it in creative ways that you like, didn't always expect. Yeah. So, um, have you, do you now have like, um, more of a team set up for support with, with things like, cause obviously, like you said, with your first tool, um, it was just you dealing with any kind of consumer complaints, as it were. Do you, are you in the same situation for shapes, or mm-hmm. is it still just you? Uh, yes. the The amount of like support I've had to do so far hasn't grown to like a massive amount. Um, so so far, it's pretty manageable. I I do have a feedback page where people can like upload um, or like post various bug reports or uh, feature requests and whatnot. Um, but but yeah. Wow. So it works pretty well. Like it's not overwhelming at this point, and most of the requests are pretty reasonable. And I've also been very vigilant in saying no to people because that was something I was really bad at when it came to Shade of Forge. I was like, I don't know, I, I was promising a lot with Shade of Forge, like promises that I couldn't uphold. Um, but now I'm really careful to always say, like, okay, this is just out of scope. I'm not going to do this instead of being like, oh yeah, maybe one day, you know. Um, so yeah. Yeah, you definitely got to set those boundaries for people because, yeah, otherwise you will just get requests constantly and demands even. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you you really do. And and like even when I was working on Shade of Forge, it always also like it was to the degree where people would like ask me to make shaders for them. And it's like, you know, I'm I'm not your personal technical artist. I'm just working on shader forage. So it was like, and, and the problem was that like my young naive self was like, well, of course I'm going to help people with their shader because I like doing shaders and I like being helpful. Um, but then in the end, that's well, kind of what that is. It's just unpaid work. <laughs> so like, yeah, that is exactly what it is. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so so re- so recently you've been um, well, obviously you're you're quite a lo- I guess a logical technical kind of minded person, but you were saying recently that you've been trying to be a bit... uh, probably yeah yeah, <laughs> but uh, that's why you decided to take up um, trying to improve your like creative art skills like drawings. Um, yeah, picking up art in general has been this thing of like. I guess I've been going back and forth on it a lot during my during my life in general. Uh, like I I made this like tweet where I was sort of joking of going between all these different like fields within game development. Um, but that tweet was not really a joke. Those are actual things that I really wanted to do each year. Um, but basically, there's I went from. Uh, wanting to do level design. That was like my very first thing. Like I loved uh, doing layouts of levels. I made a lot of levels for games like Team Fortress 2, uh, Gary's Mod, a little bit of Left 4 Dead, uh, like Source Engine games, essentially. Um, I guess I also did it for uh, the Serious Sam series, uh, (laughs) using the Serious Engine. That was like the first time I used a 3D first-person shooter engine. Um, but yes, I was really interested in like level design. Like that sort of became my passion for for a very long time. Um, and as I started getting into game development more and started exploring the different things that, that you can do, um, I got into 3D modeling. And then I was like, well, 3D modeling is really cool. It's really interesting to be able to um, you know make your own art because when you're you're doing level design, then 
you're kind of limited to the art that either the game you're modding has, uh, or you're limited to the tool sets that you have within whatever editor you're using. Um, so if you're using like Serious Engine, Unreal Engine, or any other engine that is like based on these, what's called brushes, uh, which is essentially like CSG geometry, uh, then you generally have very like blocky shapes that you, you can do. Um, and then the only like good looking models you can place are, you know, what, what comes with the game itself. So, so going into 3D art, that kind of opened up a whole new world of like, oh shit, I can actually, you know, make my own anything now, right? Because now I can, you know, if I want to make a chair that doesn't look like the other chairs, I can do that. <laughs> or if I want to add a prop that doesn't exist. Um, so like, that really opened up a lot to me. And then that made me very interested in doing that. So um, I ended up doing a lot of 3D modeling for a game called Unmechanical. So that was an Unreal Engine game um, that we released a while back. It's on Steam if you want to check it out. Um, so, so I did like almost exclusively 3D modeling there. Um, oh, I also had a transitionary period between there where I went from level design to level art, you know, lighting, uh, placing props, um, composition, all of that stuff, right? Uh, and then I went into modeling as well. And yeah, so it's been this, like, I've been back and forth in this and all over the place. And then I went into programming and then I went into shaders. Um, so um, yeah, it's been a whole journey. And I think the, I think partially it comes out of like boredom, I think, <laughs> and impatience for me. Um, like, I would like to say that it's because you know, um, cross-pollination between fields and having knowledge between them is really good, which mm -hmm. it is. Yeah. But I don't think that is the actual driving motivator for me. I think I'm just bored sometimes and I need to like do everything. Um, but I guess that's sort of like, like sometimes it's by necessity in a way, because if you kind of make indie games, you tend to like do everything. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I certainly had the same. Sorry for the long answer. Oh, no, and, no, and like, that's, that's um, good, yeah. <laughs> I, I certainly had like... And a, I didn't even mention that I was starting to, to do 2D art now. <laughs> yeah, that, um. <laughs> that, that's, that's what I've been uh, yeah, seeing you do on, uh, on Twitter, is all of this like, um, I guess, yeah, honing your 2D art skill. And it, yeah, like you say, certainly for yeah, me, yeah. Um, when it comes to being creative, I definitely get bored. Um, when I I was at, I was at my happiest when it was just me and a programmer um, creating a mobile game because I like he just did the programming and I did everything else. Um, so yeah, I was just having a way mm -hmm. of time creating visuals for the UI, um, creating models for the characters, models for the environment, like designing, um, yeah, how the levels are going to work, what what the mechanics are like, just being able to do everything. And it like I say, it's, it's massively useful having knowledge of everything but I think um, and our, our mobile game came out okay but I definitely feel like now that I have a studio of people and I have like someone who can specifically do like the 3D stuff and someone who can specifically do the 2D that I end up with a better product uh, but like you say it, yeah with, <coughs> with creative projects it's just there's a hunger there yeah yeah there really is but, but like there's also a double-edged sword type of thing with this um, because like if you um, if you are this type of person who likes jumping around between different fields and you're reasonably good at them too um, then if you join the studio chances are because you can do almost everything you can be put on any boring task that nobody else wants to do <laughs> which has happened to me yeah. a few times um so so you got to be careful with that um maybe you need to like hide your power levels and pretend you don't really do the thing you want to do you know yeah for sure <laughs> I, I think like that probably uh 3d generalists probably suffer from that like quite a lot um, certainly when I think about, yes oh definitely yeah when I think about getting someone from my studio but I don't, I don't want to fall into that trap where I'm like okay you can do like all of these little bits so that the people who are specialized in those areas they can focus on doing the big stuff because then yeah you just created a really boring job for someone <laughs> out of something that should be like yeah 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 I think it's very common for stuff like um so so you have like if you have an animator 
like this is a real life example like an animator generally wants to animate but they probably can do modeling as well and then you get into this situation of like oh if your studio needs more 3d modelers well we have this animator who's not really doing that much right now so oops all of a sudden they are <laughs> they are now doing 3d modeling instead of animating and then if that's prolonged that's going to be an issue right because then they feel like they're not really doing the job they were meant to do um yeah yeah it's definitely like almost a general problem within the industry that like um job titles and job roles are so much more fluid than any other job that I've had. Like, if you go work in a bar and you're the barman, you're the barman. <laughs> like, they don't suddenly ask you to um, like manage the bar or be, or do the accounting or like, you know, do any, or I mean, in some cases they get to do the cleaning as well, but generally they have like cleaners and stuff. So, but in the games industry, you can literally and I think it's probably because when you get into game development, you do want to learn more than one thing. You, you, so almost by default, artists that come into game development have a multitude of, of skills. They didn't just go, oh, I can 3D model. I'm just going to 3D model. They can texture, UV unwrap. Mm -hmm. In some cases, they can rig and animate and do composition. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I think that's that's maybe part of the reason but definitely it's a problem within the games industry yeah i think it is very much so at least within the indie games industry like studios that have like less than 15 people uh, tend to have a lot of these issues mm. um and then uh, but i was at um so i had my internship at avalanche studios the the people that made just costs um so it's, i had an internship there that was like my only Actually, no. But it was my first exposure to AAA studios. Um, so, so, so one thing that I noticed there that the by far the coolest thing about AAA studios is that you can find these people that are hyper specialized. You have this this person who's like absolutely super good at like rigging, um, and they know everything about rigging, and it's like ridiculous like what kind of knowledge they have just within that one field um and finding that kind of stuff is really cool to me it's really like exciting to see someone who's like so deeply knowledgeable about something um and that's something i think you see more rarely in indie games because then you tend to share a lot more work mm. um so that was really cool to see but then i also realized that AAA is very much not for me <laughs> so <laughs> that kind of left um actually was i fired i don't know that's debatable um <laughs> It's, do you know, it's quite a common story. I hear it like a hell of a lot at the moment that like people thought that they wanted to be in a AAA studio, they get into a AAA studio, they're there for either like a not very long time or they're there for like a year or so and they're like, what am I doing here? This is not what I thought it was going to be. And then they, mm -hmm. they either end up in an indie studio and are quite happy or they end up in an indie studio and find that there's just different problems within the indie scene. <laughs> Uh, I think some of the problems that come yeah, from... Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Some of the problems that I think people have in the indie scene is that um, indie teams are formed by... Generally, like, that could be formed by quite random people. So you can have, like, a programmer who's, like, really good at programming, wants to make games, creates an indie studio, but actually is no like has no skill set in terms of managing people and managing, like, um, expectations and probably falls into very easily falls into like these little bad habits where because someone says oh I can do that you go oh mm -hmm. yeah cool you can do that too then instead of being like oh maybe there's space for another person to do that and I think obviously yeah there, there's always this like awkward spot I feel like yeah. um so our studio grew from being well two people and then we grew into I think we were 10 people full-time when I left Neekart maybe more even uh, but around like 12 people. Uh, and I noticed that like there's a certain threshold when you reach like seven people, like around that amount, mm -hmm. that's when a lot of the management pains start happening. Um, that's when like you can't keep up with all conversations at all times in all Slack channels. Because that's when, you know, every conversation is something that you can't follow because then you get no work done. Mm -hmm. um, and that was like a pretty big issue for us uh, at Neat Corp because like um, 
I, I think it's very easy to like down prioritize planning and the, the role of a producer, basically. Um, I think it's easy to say that, well, that's not necessary. We can keep track of our own tasks. Never mind. We don't, we don't need like managers or anything. We're still just a small team. Um, but then you start realizing that there's actually a lot of overhead and like trying to manage stuff like that from some sort of bottom up perspective. Um, so like it's, it's really, really hard uh, to do that. And I think that's probably one of those things that indie studios are a bit too late in picking up, <laughs> or at least it was in our case. Yeah. I think it's yeah. I think it's quite a common case, uh, like situation. Um, I think what we could probably do for the indie scene is just suggest to people that like, um, if managing people isn't your skill set, but you still want to set up that studio, then maybe partner up with someone who has got some kind of management skills, because it's going to make your life easier. It will make your studio better, and it, it probably will stop some of the studios from crashing and burning when really it was just a case of if they had mm -hmm. some good management they probably could have carried on going yeah i think there's um especially with producers and and management in general um there usually is this sort of friction that i think developers generally don't like um mm. I, I think people don't like having people higher up um telling like telling them to, hey, you need to wrap up this feature. You need to stop polishing this because uh, we need to get this released at some date, right? Yeah. Um, and I feel like indie developers in general um, quite often have this attitude of like, that's not necessary and we can just polish everything until everything is like perfect, right? Mm. Uh, but the problem is that then you end up like not releasing your game. <laughs> <laughs> because yeah. you it's actually near impossible to reach perfection right um but as developers you're, you're so into the mindset of like i want to make this beautiful thing the best thing it can ever be for whoever's playing it um and i think the role of a producer is to also remind people that you know we have a schedule <laughs> and we have a studio that needs to survive and we need to actually make money because paying rent is good right mm -hmm. um yeah, so so it's sometimes it's really needed, but I think a lot of developers just don't want it. <laughs> so yeah, definitely. Like if you're not able to deal with conflict, or if you are the kind of person that tends to shy away from conflict, then managing people is not your thing because there is conflict in managing yeah, people. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, so mm -hmm. I've just noticed that we've got a question from our chat. Um, if you're open to doing a little bit of mm -hmm. answering some random questions. Um, and someone, yes. so someone ask has, questions at all times. Okay. Questions are okay, good. good. Um, so someone has said, question for Freya, uh, have you ever had to deal with crunch? Uh, yes, it's kind of like inevitable in this industry, unfortunately. It kind of happens like no matter where you are. Um, and I, I wish I could say something like, oh, this only happens in AAA studios. But no, this happens <laughs> everywhere. Um, yeah, crunch is like... It's a big topic. I don't know how much we should go into it, uh, but crunch is um, generally it's just a terrible work-life balance that starts colliding with um, a mix of people's genuine passion and desire to make the product as good as it can be. Um, like that sort of clashing with the fact that you need some spare time and you need some downtime and be able to relax right mm -hmm. um and then there are a lot of like social factors that go into crunch in terms of like um you know say you have a deadline in two weeks and um you are behind on a few things and you you feel like you know, you probably, it's going to be really stressful if you just work on this during um, the, the weekdays. So, you know, what if you just work on it during the weekend? You can just do that. It's fine. Uh, maybe you could just sacrifice that one weekend. You didn't have any plans anyway. And then you start like working on the weekend. And, um, and this can sort of cultivate a studio culture where all of a sudden you have coworkers who are like committing and pushing stuff to your project on weekends. And now you're starting to see like, oh, shit, my colleagues are working during the weekend. Uh, should I do that too? And then you get this like social pressure on like, okay, sh do I, am I expected to work on the weekends? And then, then let's say you don't work on the weekend, but your colleagues did. And then you go work on Monday and your colleague who worked over the weekend is getting a lot of praise. And like, you know, they're telling me, oh, you did a good job. I'm really glad you did this over the weekend because, you know, we have a deadline and everything. Um, so like the 
I think it's very easy to like dismiss crunch as just being a management issue, but I think it's more than that. I think there's a lot of interpersonal pressure as well that like probably doesn't come from people's bad intentions or anything. It's just that, you know, some people really want to see the project being done and some people feel like they can do it over the weekend, not aware of the pressures that they're creating for everybody else on the team. Um, so I, I feel like it's it's a very like, you have to have like a multilateral approach in solving crunch, I feel like. Um, and yeah, I don't know. It's a tricky subject um, because it's also like, I I don't want to say that it's bad to work on the weekend if you really want to. I, I don't, that's not really what, what I would say. I think it's more about like, uh, it's really important to make sure that you are setting the correct expectations for your colleagues. Um, and you have to make sure that the default is that nobody should ever feel pressure to work uh, on a weekend. Mm. Um, so like, so it's kind of the, one of those things that you have to do responsibly, right? Yeah. Um, like if it comes to it, maybe you, you could like apologize if you've been like, like for instance, messaging your colleagues um, outside of work hours is generally something that can be really bad. Um, so like, if you really want to do that, always add a caveat of like, sorry for messaging you on the weekend, feel free to respond on Monday. You don't have to respond now. Or, you know, always like try to make sure that people can feel comfortable not working on weekends because um, I think those social pressures are some of the strongest factors in like contributing to crunch. Um, that was a very long answer to no, well, that, that one question. That's really good. <laughs> but, I mean, even even for me, like... Oh, what? actually... Go on. Sorry. No, I, I just realized I also didn't even answer the question, really. <laughs> <laughs> it was about whether well, or not I've had to deal with dealing crunch. Um, so, okay, yes, I've had to deal with crunch. Uh, I the, the worst I've had to deal with um, was during the release of budget cuts, the, the very first... Um, budget cuts that we released uh, at Necorp, uh, and it was really bad. I mean, it was our, it was kind of our flagship title. It was the big game, um, and there were various issues during development that sort of led me to feel uh, apathetic toward the project. Mm. Um, and as soon as like my spark dies, that's when I start like sliding into burnout. Um, and and there was a lot of pressure because we for budget cuts one we didn't have like many coders at all it was uh, we had two coders and it was me and one other person and um, and so there was a lot of pressure on both of us so near the release of budget cuts one I I got hit really hard with burnout um, so so yeah it like and that stuff is dangerous that's like mm -hmm. I I have. I feel so incredibly lucky that I have never ever had depression in my life. And and like having burnout was probably the closest thing I've had uh that could be described as depression. And it was awful. Like it was absolutely terrible. Like you had no motivation, like nothing. You didn't want to do anything. You didn't even like it's not like you didn't want to do anything. You didn't want to want to do anything. Everything was just like nothing, <laughs> sort mm. of. Um, so like it, it was just shit in so many ways. Um, so like you have to be super careful with this stuff. And it took a long time for me to recover. I think it was um, around half a year for until I could start like recovering and start doing work again. Um, and even just building up a passion for game development as a whole um, took a while. Um, so like. Yeah, you have to be super careful with burnout, and and it's also one of those things where like, um, like the the best remedy for burnout is to not have it happen in the first place because there's not really a known way of solving it uh, once it happens. Um, and it's you know the the solution to burnout is to detach yourself from the source of the burnout in the first place, uh, which in many cases means leave your job, <laughs> mm -hmm. which is not an easy thing to do. Um, so so yeah, it's. Um, yeah, it's terrible. Uh, anyway, sorry, I interrupted you. You were going to... No, this. yeah, no. I mean, I was only going to say that I, I've had um, similar experiences, really. Uh, but also, um, my like go-to line is that I'm a self-confessed workaholic because I would literally will pick up another project and work that project while I'm working a current project. And um, I will, yeah, m like even with the team at, at Game of London, like I message them whenever I have an idea or a thought and I have to, when we have team meetings, I just say to them, I know that I message outside of work hours sometimes. You do, I'm not expecting anyone to ever reply. 
I don't. I, I sometimes don't expect you to reply when I message in working hours. So like, um, just just because I'm firing off all the time, yeah. Don't feel pressured to answer, and don't feel pressured to jump in and do stuff, and certainly don't feel pressured because mm -hmm. because I'm aware that I am this crazy workaholic. Like I don't want anyone else to feel like they need to be keeping up with what I'm doing, because like you say, it's just. Yeah. For for some people it's fine. Like I enjoy it. Like I and for the most part I enjoy. It. <laughs> um but yes, for for other people it's just a nightmare like trying to keep up with people who are just firing constantly. I would almost say that maybe I have something like ADHD. I don't know. <laughs> but certainly like yeah, my level of activity is always through the roof. And yeah, like I say to to mm -hmm. to to cultivate a good working culture you have to be aware of the kind of person you are the kind of person that you might have in within your team um and it's not always obvious so yeah i think leaving these little caveats for people to be like um just yeah just to, to have them be aware that you know that you that the expectation isn't the same yeah 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 absolutely and, and i like i feel you on that too like i do work all the time as well <laughs> um but yeah, so, um, yeah, just like you said, it's important. Yeah. Um, I'm not seeing any other people are saying. There was a question in my chat. Yeah. Uh, a while earlier. Uh, Infected Taro asks, are you mostly doing dev work in Unity these days? Have you been working on other domains or languages? Um, I just do Unity stuff. It's it's really boring. I just do Unity stuff. That's, that's basically it. Um, I guess my special skill is that I can make everything into something that you can make in Unity <laughs> or something. Um, like I started working on like a like I wanted to try making an illustration app in Unity with like pen pressure and everything. Uh, so I started making a drawing application in Unity because like I I literally don't know how to make it in anything but Unity. Mm. Um, so so yeah, I just do everything in Unity. Oh, that actually reminds me. I was using when I was a kid. I was using Game Maker. 6.1, I think. Um, I used Game Maker a really long time ago on my computer um, to make an alarm for me to wake up the next day uh, because I think my phone was like out of battery and I didn't have a charger or something. Um, so I just made it in Game Maker and just left it running on my computer. Wow! <laughs> like it's that kind of like stuff that I for some <laughs> reason do in Game Engines because I don't know how to do anything else. Um, but yeah, that's crazy. So where, how how far back would you say your like? Because it sounds like your your career into developing games um, is some ways back. Because you said that like when you were a kid, you made that in uh, the game engine. So when when did you start? Basically, how far mm -hmm. back did you was it when you started? Oh gosh, it is really hard to remember. Um... So I guess that says something. That's <laughs> back a long time. Yeah. Um, I I think I I do know that it started out as wanting to make levels in existing games. Um, the uh, I guess the the recent trajectory into like knowing one hundred percent for sure that I want to do it professionally um, is when Team Fortress Two was released uh, or the Orange Box for uh, Portal and um, Half Life. So so like. That was the moment when I knew for sure. And when was that released? Uh, okay. 2009, right. I think. Um, I, I think it was 2009. 2007, says chat. Um, so, so that's <laughs> when I knew that I wanted to do game development for sure. Um, but uh, before that, it was mostly modding. I really like making any like tile-based puzzle game. I would just, <laughs> I would just get really attached to it. Um, doing like sokoban clones forever and ever in game maker um yeah so so i was very much into like doing small little experiments in game maker um actually made a game for my grandfather for his birthday once uh in game maker <laughs> with like a with like a packaging and everything with a disc um <laughs> wow but yeah that was a really long time ago i i honestly don't remember how um so quite quite some how old i was even <laughs> but yeah i mean so yeah i yeah it, it's just been like Sorry, continue. Um, yeah, I was just going to say that, like, I I turn forty next year, and I know that kind of almost before I was ever aware that like computer games were a thing, 
I remember in my school books, like along with my friends, on the math paper that's obviously just like a grid paper essentially. Um, I used to draw like battlefields on there, School and then making levels. <laughs> I used to draw uh, battlefields on there, and then we would um, flip a coin for um, certain outcomes when it was uh, whether or not we could put down a new stick man, or whether or not we could load up with a new weapon. Mm -hmm. Like all of these basic like mechanics. So I, it for me, it started even before I realised nice. that computers were a thing that I could play with. But even that then... Sounds like a pen and paper XCOM. Yeah, <laughs> pretty much, yeah. And then um, I actually didn't get into games properly until like 10 years ago because I just, for me, I had never seen a direct path into it. So it had never occurred to me that it was something I could do. So I was always just a freelance... I say just a freelance artist, but I was, yeah, I was a freelance artist doing like, graphic design for hire or whatever visual thing that anyone ever wanted. I did like um, murals for shops and stuff. And then, yeah, so 10 years ago, I think it was about 10 years ago, um, I discovered Blender. And once I discovered Blender, I was like, oh, I can learn 3D modeling. I don't just have to do this 2D digital stuff, mm -hmm. I can do 3D. And then from there, um, at the time, Blender had a game engine. And I realized that I could make games. You, you can't. You absolutely. I don't know if anyone ever managed to successfully make a game in Blender, <laughs> because <laughs> that game engine was fraught with so many problems. Um, and they've, t they've actually torn it out now. But um, yeah, that's that's. But at of... least it opened your eyes to it, right? Yeah, that's when I was like, oh, oh, I can actually do that. All right, okay. It's I think that was um, that was a big step for me too. Um, like, just knowing you could make games. It mm. sounds silly, but when you're a kid, you don't really think too much about how things are made or whether or not it's a job that creates the thing that you like. Um, you just sort of know that there's this nebulous thing that like spits up games every now and then that you play, but you don't like question it or ask like wonder how it works mm. um, until you get older. Um, yeah, it's really like this mysterious process for a long time. I, I think uh, it's a lot. Yeah, the more... pen and paper thing. I I remember like I I used to um, I used to draw levels whenever there was like, a game that did not have a level editor. Um, I played a lot of PlayStation One, so. So like that was my youth. So like whenever I drew levels, it would usually be either uh, levels for Rayman One uh, or mm. levels for uh, Oddworld, Abe's Odyssey, or Abe's Exodus. Like oh, those games were love. like so hecking wonderful. I love those games. I still love those games, um, especially Oddworld. They're, I'm actually replaying that on stream now. <laughs> um, love but love. yeah, so so I used to like draw levels for those because there was no level editor, but I could still do it on paper. Um, as well as I drew, um, actually, this was more when I was at a place that didn't have a computer. I used to draw uh, units from uh, the game Total Annihilation. I don't know if you know that game. Um, it's an RTS game. It's, it's a really weird and good RTS game. It was sort of like one of the first games that actually used 3D models, which is kind of rare, and actually had 3D terrain for its like trajectories for bullets and whatnot. Anyway, um, so I used to like draw a lot of units for those and have these little pretend battles. <laughs> Yeah, Odd Oddworld, oh, that game, <laughs> such a good game. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, yeah. Did, did the new one come out already? The latest one, or is that set? I think it is coming out soon. Yeah. Uh, it's coming with a PlayStation 4, right? Wait, 5? 4? No, 5 is the new one. 5, yeah, I had to think that. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the, the, problem, the problem for me there, though, I'm hoping that it's not just going to be on the PS5 because I don't know if I'm going to get a PS5. That seems like something I'm probably not. I don't know going either. Do. I think it's going to come to PC as well. Let's hope I so. Think. It should do. Yeah. It's that it's such a huge mm -hmm. game, such a huge franchise. I'm sure the audience goes way beyond PlayStation's must do. I can't even remember. Yeah, what I, I think so. I mean, they were they were on the Xbox for their sequels, so maybe they have a fan base there. I think. I might have played it on the yeah on the PS One when I had mm -hmm. PS One, but not not the original PS One, the one with like that was a cuter, rounded, cornered version. Did you ever see that? The one called literally PS One, like yes. O N E. That one. Yeah, yeah, yes, <laughs> that's the one that I yeah. had. Um, yeah, mm -hmm. I think I had Oddworlds and Team Buddies 
because I wasn't a rich kid. <laughs> so I just had like whatever gotcha. I could pull the money together for. Demo discs. I had so many demo discs. They were so good. Yeah. I and when Virgin uh, Mega Stores was a thing, then they the one near me. They used to have like machines set up with games on there, and I would be in there as much as possible. Just yeah, playing whatever free access game was available. It's funny. Mm -hmm. It's funny what you do as a kid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Any anything to find some kind of entertainment. Yeah, and like when you were a kid, it was like hard to find. Um, whereas, whereas now you have like all of Steam basically, and any other storefronts where you can just get almost anything and play anything at any time. Um, and yet we don't. Yeah. <laughs> but as kids, it was like having like one game was like magical. You were like, I have this full experience, and whatever you played it, you would play it for like a year, and it was like all you could think about during that year mm -hmm. that's like that's something i really miss about childhood in general you would have this like hyper focus on like very narrow subjects for a very long time uh, and i really miss that because it's like it's really good feeling to just be like completely enveloped in something um and it doesn't happen as much when you're when you get older because now you like all of a sudden you have other things you have to think about <laughs> um but yeah yeah that's yeah for sure a massive problem like even to the point where um i now yeah i now have the, the like the reverse problem where i have so many games that i could play but i can't mm -hmm. but i can't because i don't have the time or because like if i'm like i recently i started playing don't starve together and mm -hmm. i've played something like i think because on steam it tells you um i think i've been, i've played 35 hours or something of of that but like that just means that I don't have I don't have extra time to play the other games that like I do kind of want to play them, but at the moment like yeah you, I've got adult life. <laughs> mm -hmm. There's adult life, one game that you can play, and then you have to get back to your adult life. But then there's the question of like, do you really not have time for it, or is it just that you don't find games as entertaining anymore? Oh. Hmm. I don't know. Like some games get me good when they get me. There's definitely it's definitely harder. I would say. Like there's so many games that I've seen now, um, that if I had yeah if I had have had as a child, I would have just been like, oh my god, amazing a game. Whereas now I'm like, that game's probably okay. That game's probably mm -hmm. okay. This one might be really <laughs> good. Like yeah. Um, so with the um, the racial justice bundle, I. Um, got access to a game I'd been watching, like develop online for a really long time, but hadn't really, I hadn't really even considered buying it, and that was a short hike. Mm -hmm. I, I oh right, I've been meaning to play that too. It seems really good. Oh my god, I wasn't expecting no spoilers. Like, no, yeah, no, no spoilers. <laughs> but I wasn't expecting it to grab me, and it, it so grabbed me, like, oh, mm -hmm. and just, oh, did you play Outer Wilds? No. Okay, that was one of the games I played very recently. That was really good. Um, anyway, yeah, play that game. The the space <laughs> game. Not the... Actually, both of them are space games. There, there are two games. There are, uh, there's the Outer Worlds, and then there's Outer Wilds, and people mix them up all the time. Um, Outer Wilds, the indie game, is a really cool one. Um, not the AAA shooter. <laughs> um, yeah. Don't look up spoilers and whatnot, uh, but it's really cool. If you like narrative-based stuff, if you like exploration stuff, uh, it's really atmospheric and um, existential horror, but without being a horror game, and it's great. <laughs> Maybe I have played that. Is it mostly text-based? No. No, I uh, different game. I think I played another game from the bundle, and I think it's called The Crew, maybe? But it's it's really like you travel around space and yeah the events that happen are fairly dark. Okay. There's there's a lot be, and like almost to the point where you don't know whether or not you're gonna. You literally don't know if if the action that you perform is gonna end up killing someone or not, and you you gotcha. think. I and I think it's it's probably really close to how life would be in space, like. I guess, yeah. There, there's a lot of things that can go crazy wrong in space, and that just means death. Mm -hmm. um, almost more so than, yeah, walking around this lovely little planet that we live on. <laughs> yeah. So um, are you 
Are you working on any games at the moment? Am I? Um, <laughs> she don't yes. even know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it was a very easy answer when I was working at Necarp. Um, right. But ever since I left Necarp, there's only the projects that I work on. And I've been very focused on working on shapes for the past months. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I've been super focused on that. But I do work on a game as well. Um, they're working on a game called Flowstorm. It's a it's like a 2.5D racing game that's sort of a mix between Trackmania, Super Meat Boy, and Lunar Library. Uh, it's a very strange game. I have no idea what the target audience is, but I know the audience is at least me. Um, <laughs> it's a good stuff. It's like, it's like a racing game, but I will not capture any of the people who are into it for the cars because you don't use a car. You fly around with a little rocket. Um, so like I, I miss out on all the car nerds. Um, and it's a platformer, but there's no character. So like, it's, I, I don't know. I, I think I'm limiting my audience a lot with this game. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's like very much the, like Trackmania. It's, it's like short levels, uh, very much about like shaving off milliseconds of your time, finding the optimal route, uh, that type of stuff. Like very skill-based every game. Um, mm. and that's the, that's been the, the primary game that I'm working on when I'm streaming. Um. Oh, I okay. guess I didn't mention that I also do streaming. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I stream on Twitch, um, just like I am right now. Um, and I, I generally stream game development. So uh, when I work on a game, I work on Flowstorm. And I usually try to have this like tutorial approach where I talk about what I'm doing, always answering questions, um, sometimes going on very long tangents about mathematical circular constants. Um, yeah, like that's sort of what I do on my stream. So um, that's like your own personal game project. That's not like something. yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Do you ever? It do... does have a very complicated history, though. Uh, it used to be, <laughs> it used to be something that was part of Necorp. It was actually what kind of founded Necorp. Oh, right. Okay. Um, that we wanted to make Flowstorm at Necorp, um, but then, um, then like we launched a Kickstarter for Flowstorm years ago. The Kickstarter failed. And then both of us that co-founded Necarp started freelancing, and then it kind of just disappeared. Um, and I think that's around the time when Shade of Orange really kicked off. And then we suddenly got time for it again, started working on the third revision of the game, like rewriting it from scratch. Um, and then, uh, then we got a VR headset from Valve at GDC. And then we started working on budget cuts. And then Flowstorm was just kind of forgotten, pushed to the side. Right, right. Um, yeah, and then Nikar became a VR studio. And then we're kind of limited to only doing VR games. Um, yeah, and then after a while, um, I left for a bunch of different reasons. And now I can work on Flowstorm again. So, so Flowstorm has been like um, this thing that used to be tied to Nikarp, And then I kind of just lifted it out of Nikarp, And now it's the thing that I work on on my own. Do you um do you still from time to time do work on like other people's games, or do you just focus on your own game and your own um, like, shapes and things? I I did do freelancing uh for a short while uh like actually someone linked an old version of Flowstorm that's not the current version I don't really have a website for the current version apart from my stream um anyway sorry um so so the uh I. Right after I left Necarp, I started doing freelance work because I need to pay the rent. Mm -hmm. And my like Patreon and Twitch at the time didn't like make enough money to like sustain me. So, uh, so I did do, do some freelance work, and but that was only for like three months ish. Okay. Um, because then when I when I released Shapes, um, like my Patreon exploded, and like and and as soon as I released it on the asset store. That went really well. Uh, so, like now, all of a sudden, I not only have a you know reasonable salary, but I also have a surplus of money that I need to like figure out how to like spend as a you know as a creator. And um, yeah, so it's been it's been wild, and that happened like really recently. It was just like three months ago or two months ago uh, that all of a sudden I I just have all of these resources <laughs> from having released shapes. Um, nice. So. Yeah, so so it's very new to me to suddenly be like uh, fully indie, I guess. Um, if you can call yourself indie when you're actually dependent on your Patreon supporters and whatnot, I don't know. <laughs> um, <laughs> the def definitions get weird. Yeah. Um, but but yeah, so so now 
I'm in this phase of like trying to figure out, you know, how are my resources best spent? Uh, like, obviously, I guess I'm like, to some extent, I bumped up my salary because my salary was bare minimum before and saving for a, an apartment that's bigger than one room that I'm sitting in uh, is good. Um, but other than that, I, uh, I started looking into video editors because now, uh, you know, with more resources, I can uh, pay people to help me uh, build my YouTube channel and, you know, clip stuff from my stream and sort of build up a bigger audience from that. Um, so, yeah, so that's sort of what I've been looking into as of late. And now I feel like I went to, into a long tangent again <laughs> when someone has a bluster. But, um, but yeah, anyway, sorry. Tangent's all good. Tangent's all good. Okay. <laughs> um i think i think you're right about this whole like um where the lines start to blur with with roles as to whether or not you can whether or not you could or should call yourself an indie dev or whether or not like um because some of us like right now are streaming on twitch so we could technically be called streamers are are Mm -hmm. we are we content creators are we influencers are we yeah or are we just all of them and there's no name for people who just like well actually i would say back in the day (laughs) um when i was younger people used to say that i was a renaissance man because i did all of these like different type things so maybe we're just this new age renaissance people maybe my narcissistic self wants to call myself a polymath uh, but that's that's a heavy swing yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's to be honest with you, it's probably my narcissistic self that likes the idea of being, yeah, a renaissance man. <laughs> mm-hmm. Just it's just a, a cool title, really, isn't it? You can It is, yeah. It's it, yeah, it's almost like like we were saying with when you uh work in an indie studio, like whatever your job title is, very rarely does it cover the the spec sheet of the jobs that you do within that studio mm-hmm. but but this is sort of like um i guess this is kind of the frustrating part but also kind of the beautiful part of how language works mm-hmm. in general mm-hmm. uh like you have all of these terms that everybody has their own definition of um and yet there's still this sort of cultural zeitgeist where people have a vague shared understanding of what words mean mm-hmm. um so like if you say that you're an you're an indie developer, uh, then you could go by some sort of really contrived technical definition of like, okay, independent means that you do not have a publisher that you are dependent on, that and they will ask you to make changes to your game or whatever. Um, but then with that definition, that's like super technical. Then Valve would be an indie developer, uh, and then then the question is like. Is that how people use the word indie developer today? And is that like accurate in terms of our shared understanding of that word, right? Then usually the answer is like, not really. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like I think I think indie dev has sort of become synonymous with small team that have creative freedom. Yeah. And then whether or not they get funding from something else doesn't really matter that much. Um mm-hmm. so so you always run into these issues of like, um I I I guess I generally have a problem with people who start reading technical definitions for things because that's almost never useful. <laughs> um, because we do need to like think about, you know, what does this word mean within our current culture, right? Yeah. Um, and then any like textbook definition, uh, like textbook definitions only like follow our language after the fact. So it's like, yeah, it's kind of hard to keep up with like all the words and what they mean right now. Um, but yeah. Yeah, it's also like... Um... At what point does an indie studio get to be considered a AAA studio? Like, because mm-hmm. there are some indie studios out there who create AAA quality games, but they're not considered AAA because then they don't have like a, a large a, a larger team, or they don't have <clears throat> they don't have like a studio in more than one location. So, mm-hmm. like, yeah, like you say, the, def- the definition certainly. I think the definition of indie dev kind of is really broad right now. Like, um, whenever anyone asks me, or if, if I introduce anyone from within my team to new people, I say, oh, they're an indie dev like me. Like, even if mm-hmm. they're like um, the 3D artist or the animator or like the programmer, I, I think obviously developer, people tend to think of developer as a programming thing. 
the one. Oh yeah, that's another like word that is tricky sometimes. Yeah. yeah. I, I get really confused when people use the word developer to mean programmer. It, it's just really weird to me. <laughs> yeah. And also, yeah, programmer or coder, like mm -hmm. like <laughs> I like coder better. Like the I don't know, the letter C, like starting with a C looks cuter. And then it's also a shorter word and it feels a bit more casual and I like that. Whereas programmer feels a bit more stale and corporate. And uh, that's why I like coder better. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I think you're right. Programmer almost feels like uh, yeah, it just feels clunky. It feels a little robotic. Like your goal is to program the behavior of a system. Like it feels like that's what you're saying. But with the coder, it's like I just I just sling code left and right to do whatever I wanted to do. You know, <laughs> it feels a bit more casual. Yeah. Well, it could even be considered an architect. Oh, that sounds that sounds very like fancy. <laughs> I don't know. An architect, architect, architect. Now I just picked up your dialect. Okay. <laughs> um, like that sounds. That sounds also like that. That also sounds like. I don't know. It seems like someone who's like very pretentious and gets a lot of money. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, that's yeah, that's what I associate with. <laughs> yeah, I mean, coders should get a lot of money, really, for everything, that, and and in the best cases they do. But an architect certainly, I, if I'm right, tends to earn insane amounts of money. Are you talking about like architects of like buildings mm. or like yeah. right? Because there's also architects within code bases, um, I suppose. That's um, true. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This is a massive problem with language, isn't it? But what do we what do we call I, ourselves? I think it's it's a little bit of a problem, but it's also fun. Yeah. <laughs> That's what that was makes that kind of makes conversation fun. Although it does tend to a lot of disagreements. Um, but I like disagreement. I live off of that. It's fun for me. <laughs> Um, with with your with what you're doing now, so I'm trying to figure out you're you're still part of the studio that you were once part of, or you're no longer part. No, of No, I left it officially. So, would you ever consider like creating a new studio with you and someone else, or do you think studio life is done for you? I think this is really hard to tell. Mm. Um, I think I don't. I don't think I would want to start the studio, uh, at least not as of right now, because mm. um, I do feel like I I get a lot of joy out of working on my own projects. And like one of the biggest reasons as for why I left Nikarp was that the studio sort of outgrew me. Um, like we at the studio, we've always had a very like flat hierarchy um, mm -hmm. and um, and the studio sort of drifted into making types of games that I did not want to make. Right. Um, so like, it, like one of them being that, you know, Nikar became a VR studio, like kind of just, we couldn't really do anything other than VR. Cause you know, we had a lot of like deals with Oculus and other people who could like fund our projects and whatnot. Yeah. Um, so, and they would expect us to continue doing VR. Right. Um, so, so then we're limited by that, uh, but kind of like not regarding all of that. Even just thinking about the all of my colleagues who are absolutely wonderful people. I love everybody at Neat. They're all my friends, and I was really scared to leave because they're all my friends, right? Um, but um, the problem for me was that we had a few pitch days where people could pitch their game ideas. And mm -hmm. the goal is basically pitch a bunch of game ideas, and then people vote on the ones they like the most, and then we discuss them and figure out what we want to do next. Um, and it just seems to me that, like, when we did that, it, it became pretty clear to me that I think most of the team would want to work on projects that I don't want to work on. Um, and, you know, at the time when we had that like pitch meeting, we were talking about it was after Budget Cuts 1. So it was clear that we probably should make a Budget Cuts 2 because now that's our biggest franchise and we can easily get funding for that. Yeah. Um, so like, so in my head, it was like, OK, so Neat is going to make Budget Cuts sequels. Um, which I was very much not interested in because I was burnt out on the first game and just opening Unity with that project like, was difficult. There was so much friction in my head just mm. going back to that project. Um, and then the other game that people wanted to work on was the, um, like, I was Garden of the Sea. And Garden of the Sea, um, it was like a VR farm game. 
And that was a project that everybody else was really passionate about, but I was not. And like, and like, while you could say that, like, okay, I am the co-founder, I could be like, no, you know what? I'm going to use my co-founder powers and yeah. say, you know, uh, fuck all of you. Actually, I don't know if I can swear on this podcast. <laughs> you understand for that in that case. It's, it's all good. <laughs> but I, like, I don't want to be that person. Because, like, again, we have a very flat hierarchy. Um, mm. And I think, um, and even if we didn't, I feel like I'm not in a moral position to just tell everybody that, no, we're not going to work on this game that you're all really excited about. We're going to work on my game that none of you are excited about. <laughs> yeah. um, so it wasn't that bad. But um, so, so I felt like um, I had to sort of take a step back and figure out, you know, what do I want to do, right? Um, like I, um, I had to figure that out in order to know where to go. And I felt very strongly that I did not want to work on the projects that Neat was going to do. Um, and I was doing my streaming stuff kind of parallel to, um, when Budget Cuts 2 was being developed. Um, and I started realizing that all of my own projects were giving me a lot of joy, just like mm. tinkering on my own stuff, um, streaming like I'm doing right now, um, meeting a bunch of people on stream, talking about random stuff. Uh, all of this stuff was like really rewarding to me. And um, and then I just kind of like came to the conclusion that, well, I should probably leave me because like I'm I'm not happy there. Yeah. <laughs> like even though it feels strange as a co-founder to leave, um, but I, I think it was the right decision in the end, even though even though I do feel like I don't know, especially with COVID and everything, I feel like I just cut off all of my friends like in one go, which is a little scary. Um, yeah. But I think they're still my friends. We just don't really meet anymore. Um, but yeah, so it's, it's a little scary, but I think it, I think it worked out well. I still think it was the right decision to do, um, especially now that like, you know, Shapes has been released. Uh, that is selling really well on the asset store. Um, the... Um, uh, like my Patreon has grown a lot. Like that one is also going really well. Uh, so now I am in a position that is basically the same as when I released Shade of Forge, where all of a sudden I could start a studio and do all of the stuff we wanted. And, you know, I feel like basically that has happened again, but with shapes yeah. now instead. So now, um, so now I'm like sort of, sort of navigating this space of like, okay, how do I do all of this on my own? Mm -hmm. Um, and how do I scale this if I don't really want to start a studio? Um, so, so I guess like what I'm looking at right now is like, you know, do contractors and stuff uh, for like video editing and then sort of still working on basically just my own projects. Um, and then, um, yeah, that's sort of where I'm, where I'm at right now. It's, it's so insane that like that's something that we're able to do in this like time. That's not. Yeah. I was so surprised. I did not expect to get that much support on Patreon. Like I thought Patreon would like drop heavily as soon as all the COVID stuff started happening. Mm. Uh, but like, Jesus Christ, people who support like art during these times is like, oh my God, <laughs> thank you so much. Because <laughs> this is a hellscape. Um, mm. So yeah, it's, it's really, really wonderful. Um, yeah, it's, it's sort of like a dream come true. And it happened like a bit too suddenly for me. So I'm still like in this state of like, oh gosh, what do I do with this now? Yeah. Um, but I will see where I land. I think the, the, the biggest thing that um, I was working at Neat part time for a long time. And so it was 50% of Neat and 50% doing like streaming stuff. And I think the, um, the, the thing that I really wanted to do, like I always was, I was always thinking like, what would happen if I could do whatever I wanted full time? Um, one of the things I really wanted to start doing was to uh, make like video essays, like more proper YouTube videos covering some topic, right? Yeah. Um, and that was something that I really wanted to start doing. Um, so I have gotten started with that. And I've also started realizing that making videos takes a very long time. <laughs> um, a very long time, yep. Yeah, um, but, uh, but yeah, so I'm sort of dipping my toes into that. Uh, so I do have a video on polygon triangulation coming up very soon, which is nice. exciting to me because I like polygons and mm -hmm. these algorithms. <laughs> um, but yeah, so, so so that's something I've started doing, um, as well as like going back to streaming properly and, and working on my plugins and whatnot. So um, where do you, do you have like a Discord community for your uh, followers and stuff, or is it? 
Um, yes, they we'll... do. Oh, okay, cool. Posted a link in my chat in case you want to join the Discord. Yes. <laughs> go go join that Discord. Join everyone's no, not everyone's Discord. I'm sure there are some terrible Discords out there. <laughs> Uh, yeah, probably. Um, but yeah, so, so we the community we have is very um, game developer centric, obviously. Um, so a lot of game developers and creative people in general, people interested in like hardware and tech. Um, it's also it's a very LGBT friendly space, and a lot of us are LGBT. Um, so it's very much like an intersection of like those two communities. Um, yeah, it's a good place, and we also like ban Nazis, which not every place does. So, wow. you know, that's a plus. <laughs> I'm, I'm surprised. But we try that to keep it a very don't. friendly pl place. Um, so, yeah. yeah. Um, so we've been talking for just around about an hour, which is how long mm -hmm. we tend to do podcasts for, um, and I think we've mm -hmm. got quite a nice uh, natural end point here. So, uh, yeah, if you. Sure. If you would like to just let people know where they can find you, um, uh, all the all the links and stuff and stuff like that. Uh, um, but I exist on pretty much all social media stuff where people expect to find me. Um, on YouTube, I upload a lot of like VODs from my streams. Um, I do a lot of like tutorial stuff. I have like a how to make shaders. Uh, I have a long introduction to uh, tool development in Unity. Um, and like a video on how to do maths in game development. Um, yeah, so so there's a lot of like tutorial like content there. Uh, on my Twitter, posts about game devs and various hot takes, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, I also share my art there every now and then. Um, and uh, yeah, and my Patreon exists. Uh, there's also my vector graphics library shapes. Um, yeah. Do you, do you have a website? That's that, those are all my plugs. I think that's it. <laughs> uh, what's that? Do you have a website? Yes. My website is pretty much only uh, like links to my social media. That, um, but that's my website good... is, um, is uh, acegeekmo.com. That's my website. It's basically my nickname.com. OK, we've got it in chat here. So there we go. Because that, that's all I'm going to do for ours. I'm going to tell everyone here <laughs> that if you want to learn more about Game Dev London, just visit gamedev.london. Uh, there's links to everything where we exist on the web, and you will find us there. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, we, we obviously we do a podcast. This is our first live podcast. We may do more of these because this was absolutely a lot of fun. Um, and I think that's it for now. So thank you for joining us, Freya. Thank you for being an amazing guest. Thank you so much for having me. And I'm, I'm sorry if I just rambled way too much about No, no, no. That's exactly what <laughs> I've already talked about. <laughs> this is exactly what you want. You want to, like, you know, it's a podcast. People want to hear us talking about stuff. And... <laughs>